Welcome to episode 52 of the Bulak podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay, recording from Amman, Jordan, and with me, as always, is Marsha Links Quayley in Rabat, Morocco. Hi, Marsha. Hey, Ursula. How's it going over there? Uh, much better now that we have started to open up again. I'm very excited. I was at the park yesterday. <laughs> awesome. That's great. Now we can, we're still both recording from our homes, but we are no longer trapped in our homes, which is wonderful. Yes, definitely. And um, today we're going to be talking about just some books that we've uh, written about and read uh, recently. Um, so uh, I'm going to start with a book that uh, I had a review come out of recently. This is uh, Azadeh Muaveni's book, about women who joined ISIS. It's called Guest House for Young Widows. It actually came out last year. Um, but uh, the review, which has been in the works for months, uh, just came out last month. Um, and I'll just read a little excerpt first. So the, the book basically is about, um, it tells a lot of different stories. It follows the stories of a lot of different women uh, who joined ISIS from Europe, from Arab countries, or who actually were like already um, in Raqqa when ISIS took over there. And um, I would say of all the stories, the one that sort of moved me the most maybe is uh, one of two Tunisian girls who actually never managed to get to Syria. They joined basically an affiliate of ISIS in Libya. Uh, um but the story is told from the point of view of their mother, and they were working uh, in the summer cleaning houses in Libya, and that's when Olfa's two daughters, uh, Gufran and Rahma, ran off. So uh, this is this is just a little anecdote describing that morning. The next morning, Olfa's phone rang. The woman who employed Gufran said she hadn't come home the night before. She hadn't left a note. The panic struck Olfa so completely that she ran out of the house without her shoes, flying the three blocks to Gufran's house. She stopped every person she passed on the way and asked, panting, Do you know my daughter, Gufran? Have you seen her? She had thought Rahma was the impetuous one, the one in danger of going astray. Never did she think that Gufran, her confidant, her wise eldest and most beloved child, would be the one to go. Alpha imagined what might have happened. Perhaps she'd met a man, a nice man, and run off with him. Perhaps she would hear from her soon, a phone call to say that this stuffy middle-class parents hadn't approved, so they had eloped and were living in Tripoli, and could Alpha come make arrangements to visit soon? When she arrived at Rahma's household, her daughter looked at her disheveled clothes, her bare feet caked with dust and dirt. Don't stress yourself, mummy. There's nothing you can do. Hufran has gone to Syria, she said in a mild voice. Syria, Olfa hissed. The woman who employed Rahma, the wife of a militia leader, overheard the exchange. Has she really gone to Syria? she asked curiously. Olfa knelt down and began kissing Rahma's feet, weeping and begging her daughter, tell me where she's gone. Don't take your sister away from me. Um, and I'll just, there's the, the whole scene is too long to read, but as it goes on, her daughter, her 13-year-old daughter, 
um, not only refuses to give any information about where the other daughter has uh, run off to, she takes a phone number where she takes a piece of paper with a phone number and swallows it in front of her mother mm-hmm. in an act of defiance. Um, and the mom smacks her in the face and screams at her, shut up with your daula bullshit, uh, referring to the Islamic State. I found the whole scene, though, I mean, obviously, it's a parent's nightmare. Um, and this, and but there's something also about the defiance of this preteen that you can imagine, and it's really quite terrifying in 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 how she like stands up to all this intimidation and then she she eventually runs off herself um so yeah that's one of the threads in the book right so can you give us a kind of an overall picture of the book and and its project yeah so i mean this the structure is like a lot of interwoven stories um uh samovani also writes about this famous group of uh British girls um, who uh, whose parents had been immigrants to Britain from different countries uh, who run away, who are 14, 15, who, who ran away to join ISIS and were sort of became very infamous and talked about in the British tabloids. Uh, she features several women from Tunisia. She features some women who lived in Raqqa. She features a German convert. Uh, a Lebanese convert in Germany. I mean, there's a lot of threads. Uh, and and she tells, you know, just kind of the arc always of how these women, uh, you know, how it occurred to them to go join the Islamic State and then how they traveled there and then what happened to them there. And then, you know, there's different denouements. Some of the stories you actually don't kind of get a satisfying ending because I think the reporting was difficult so in some cases it seems like she you know not she wasn't able to directly interview all the women sometimes she's just reconstructing it um and sometimes uh you don't really i mean it was i think she kind of lost the thread or lost the contact with that person or couldn't you know get all the information um but you get a sense of you know all these different experiences uh of joining ISIS. One of the things that was strange for me reading the book is how long ago it seems that we were concerned with the Islamic State. <laughs> it, it does feel like a very long time ago now. I mean, remember when it was like the global threat? Like it's it was talked it was talked about as if, you know, this is the, you know, the single most dangerous thing happening in the world now, which I think was always, you know, a bit overblown in the sense of it was obviously like a terrible thing happening in Iraq and Syria, but it wasn't actually the threat to the West that it wanted to be and that the West sort of portrayed it as. I mean, yeah, there were those definitely. spectacular terrorist attacks and, you know, and elsewhere, which which also sort of magnified the sense that it was, you know, enemy number one. And doesn't that seem like ages ago? So long ago. So many different stories ago. Yeah. Um so but the book interested me because I am sort of inter- I was I was I'm interested in like portrayals of people that have a, a really different experience than mine or different worldview than mine and and this and particularly sort of and take these kind of radical engagements right I mean to go join this organization you know uh all these women went 
when it was already clear, when ISIS was already committing those like highly publicized executions and attacks, like it was, that's actually part of what drew them. They weren't unaware of what the organization was doing. Right. Um, And I guess I have some, you know, criticisms of the book and my criticism mostly is that I feel like there's actually too many strands and too much of a kind of trying to package it into this overarching point, which is a criticism of Western foreign policy, basically. Right. Which is, which is valid, but it's not, it's not to me the most interesting thing about these stories. Like I'm not... I think, you know, Western foreign policy can be criticized on its own terms. What I was hoping for in a book like this was some sort of kind of individual insights more or like individual portrayal. And I feel like she didn't quite achieve that. Yeah. One of the other things you said in your review was that you parted ways with her about over the conception of empathy. Yeah, I mean, I think the book tries to do kind of advocacy or to use these women's stories to make an, a, a point. I mean, you know, because of a lot of these women are also not like they're, you know, have ended up in these like horrible refugee camps uh, where, where uh, you know, ISIS women and children are being held indefinitely and they're not allowed back to the countries, the Western countries, uh, you know, even if they're citizens of those countries. Um, and I agree that I think actually they should be allowed back and they should just be tried. And it's, 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 it's not right to sort of push them out of the judicial, treat them as so exceptional and outside of any judicial system that they can't, you know, come back as citizens and be responsible for their actions. Mm Uh, you know, uh, so I think that's, I agree with her on that point, but I think, I don't want to, I'm not interested in being, in them being explained to me or justified or made sympathetic. Like I, I'm interested in that kind of thing you can get sometimes through really good writing where you just like see and hear a person who's really different from you, but you kind of recognize them as a person. Like they come to life, uh, you know, I don't have to like them. Right. I'm just interested she in was, them. She was pushing too hard on the details that would make them relatable rather than what would make them feel real. Yeah. And I felt like the stuff that made less. So like in this, you know, that the this one story of the Tunisian mom, she's one of the few people that like you can actually kind of hear her. Like you, you get a feeling for her when she's talking about it or she's so heartbroken. She's so angry. She's so guilty. But for the most part, they didn't really come off the page for me. They just felt like a collection of these details, like what TV show she liked and, you know, where she, you know, where, I don't know, these little details, but that didn't add up to a person. Mm -hmm. It just felt, and I think also there's a problem in like, she doesn't quote them directly for the most part. She almost entirely paraphrases what they say and think. And so you're kind of, like, why I won't try hearing this straight from them. I think that would make it a lot more vivid. Right. Is that a, a language thing? I think partly. I think partly. I'm not sure. Sh- I think she did use translators for some of the interviews and then some not. But but that's how the whole book is recounted. Okay. Is Is there's this kind of narrator saying, like, she thought this and she felt this. And you don't, you know, when you don't hear a person's 
voice, they become a little bit undifferentiated. Right. Um, where like I, I kind of contrast this, like there's this, there's this French reporter's book, uh, that came out, you know, many, several years ago now, um, uh, called, uh, Les Revenants in French, and it's been translated into English. I think it's The Returned. Mm. It's about pe- French, young French men and women. It's mostly men who joined ISIS and came back. And each chapter is like told entirely almost, it's almost pure quotation. I mean, that's what I remember. And they just come to life so much more. And some of them are, I mean, a lot of them are complete jerks still, like even after coming back, like they're not sympathetic, but, but you feel like you got insights, right? Like you feel like you understand them more, not understand in the sense of like, oh, I understand. I can sympathize. No, just that you, you get something about what was appealing about it to them, uh, why they made this choice. Uh, and, and then, and then the other book that I thought about was the, the beekeeper of Sinjar, which we've talked about. Right. By Dunya Mikhail. Where you also hear voices, right? Like you, Absolutely. you hear, um, yeah, which is, uh, the, the stories of Yazidi women who, who have, who were enslaved and, and in most of the stories, the reason we're hearing them because they successfully managed to escape, but, um, yeah, yeah most, so that... most of the voices are of the enslaved women. Although I did feel like I also got a sense of the lives and motivations of the women who were enslaving them as well. Right. So, so, so Moaveni's book is all about is there's no it's not doesn't it barely touches it mentions like what what was done to the Yazidi people like twice. Uh, it's all from the point of view of these of the women who went who who would have had. Yazidi slaves in their houses, right? These are the women who went and joined ISIS and were like, you know, the 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 brides of of ISIS fighters and like lived in like comfortable middle class homes in Raqqa or whatever and had, you know, and then were remarried every time their fighter husband died and um and and I agree that in the beekeeper those women are also present in some of the stories. And some of them are villains and some of them are not. Remember, there are right. women yes. in Raqqa who help the Yazidi women. Right. Yeah, they're all complicated in some way. I wouldn't say, you know, uh, I necessarily felt sympathy for any of them, but I, I did feel an understanding, which I think, yeah, is a much more complex and interesting way to read. I mean, yeah, the, I remember the one story, maybe she, she the, of the woman whose father was in ISIS and she hid a Yazidi woman oh, in yes. her okay. shop well, that, for months. Yes. That and then she I said, like, I wish I'd run away with you. Like, and, and then there's awful women. But in fact, I wish, you know, again, the Moveni book, like, why isn't there anybody who, you know, fesses up to having just been like, there's also very little self on the part of the women, she didn't manage, in my opinion, to get them to like really open up and really analyze what they did. Like there's nobody who's feels like they've re- they're really being, you know, open and self-reflective. And even if it's to like express no regret, even if that's their position, like, no, to this day, I don't regret it at all. And here's why. Right. But you don't you just don't get their point of view on like what they did. 
right. and what they were complicit right. in. Right. I guess I ultimately I don't care if they had Lucky Charms and whatever. Listen to K-pop. Yeah, I mean, it's the least interesting thing about them. Like they went and joined ISIS. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I, that seems like, you know, the more, I mean, and they were very young and, you know, but and there's, and, and just terribly stupid. Like it was, I mean. Right. Any, well, there's anyway. A, there's a wonderful line from your review that you, you'd said something like, they, some of them exhibited a kind of stupidity that is indistinguishable from evil. Yeah, I mean, I, be, I, I believe that. I think stupidity is like an extremely, you know, strong uh, human trait and, and force in society. And, and in action, it is often like so harmful that it is a form of, of harm and of evil. Like you're responsible for not being a complete idiot and and hurting other people i mean you know what i mean yeah yeah you are responsible for your ignorance and your and your callousness like um so i don't think these women are not responsible uh, uh i just i i do i do agree that the the way they've been sort of pathologized as like you know they can never you know uh you know, they have to be sort of like sent out into utter darkness forever. No, like we can engage, we can, you know, we can engage with their crimes. They can engage with their crimes. Like uh, it can be dealt with. Right. Well, that is, uh, you know, you could argue that that's a part of reparations, but this is like a sort of a different judicial or sociological argument versus the personal portrayal of their stories, which are two right. separate things. And I actually think it's more interesting if you're going to write a book, not to sort of argue, or it's a different book, but if you're going to write as a reporter, I'm not interested in their legal, or more, like in establishing how guilty they are. I'm just interested in getting to know them. Like that's, I think, why you'd pick up a book like this, right? It's kind of curiosity about human nature. Yeah, I mean, I think and, a lot of it is so... Could I ever be me, ever be in a situation right. where I would do something like that? I mean, to me, that's why <laughs> I guess that that's like the ultimate curiosity for me. What what drives a, per, a human being to do this? Uh, you know. Yeah, and and I think yeah, and um, to change the the topic slightly, uh, the 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 other book that I've been. Uh, that I wrote about slightly is also one where you sort of try to imagine yourself this time more in a different time than in a different situation. And that also kind of brings up questions of like complicity or responsibility because it deals with colonialism and it's, um, the Moroccan writer Leila Slimani's latest book, which has come out in French and not yet in English, but I'm sure will be forthcoming in English, um, the Le Pays des Autres, so the the country of others or the land of others, um, which starts like post World War II and is in in the last and covers the last decade basically of French colonialism in Morocco, um, and where you also kind of you you 
I think one of the things it does is like make you put yourself in the position of the narrator who is this French woman who marries a Moroccan man and moves to Morocco uh, in, I think, 1946 and, and then has this whole experience of like, uh, you know, culture clash and, and bringing up children and like uh, on a, on a hard scrabble farm outside of McNess and um, you know, uh, experiencing this like mixed marriage and and uh and experiencing the end of colonialism and you kind of wonder like uh i mean i think that's the sort of interesting thing about it is her, is is her attempt to have you put yourself in the place of this woman and that book you find successful i mean i have some criticism but too i don't i have criticism of most books i think actually maybe uh more often than not uh, I find it pretty successful. Like it's a good, it's, I mean, it's an engaging read. I think it's probably for me personally, her best book so far. Mm. Uh, I didn't particularly like her previous books. I, I know the perfect nanny was like an international bestseller. Uh, I just, I didn't think it was that well written right, or, or that interesting really, or that sort of like, it, it sort of had this intent to shock, but which I thought was a bit actually superficial this is the book that tells the story of the of the middle class couple that gets a nanny who eventually murders their children uh i think this book is part of a planned trilogy it's based on slimani's own family history so her grandmother was a french woman who married her moroccan grandfather met during world war ii when he was serving in the french army moved back to morocco so it's very much based on her family history and I think she's already said that it's going to be basically the first volume is about her grandmother. The second will be about her mother's generation and the third will be about her own. Mm -hmm. um, and it's much kind of bigger book. I mean, it's both longer and, 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 and written in a more like expansive style, like a lot more description, um, a lot more of the, of the omniscient narrator sort of telling you what the characters are feeling and are thinking. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a fairly good read. There's, there's some things I think, um, it, it's, a, there's a tendency to like introduce characters and sort of tell you everything about them. So they don't really develop or reveal themselves. They just kind of walk on and, and you already and and she tells you kind of what their deal is this omniscient narrator and then they sort of perform a function in the story and then they leave right um so i found that you know not super compelling uh but there's a lot of powerful scenes and 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 interesting scenes i mean her whole theme is always kind of uh domination and within like marriage and families and like there's a fair amount of violence there's a lot of unhappiness uh she's always kind of going for the dark side uh so that's and 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 if you you know that that's just like runs through her work like uh they're always kind of stories about uh, you know, women who are not successful in in being free or, you know, self-fulfilled, I would say. Right. I guess I wonder if the whole arc ends with 
how how does the whole arc end? How does she, how does she insert herself into that narrative? That's a good question. I mean, especially considering that her, the way she's she's such a superstar in France and the media portrayal of her for which she isn't entirely responsible but that she does definitely play along with is that she's such a liberated woman of Muslim and Arab background and isn't that amazing. Right. Yes. That's definitely like I was reading a lot about her as I reviewed this book and and some of the some of the things that are slipped into these profiles of her are really um are are really quite uh surprise I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but you know, such cliches. Right. I mean, just the fact that she writes about sex at all is considered, you know, once again, groundbreaking, even though we know there's nothing groundbreaking about it. Yeah, literally nothing. There's all kinds of Moroccan women writing about sex. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But she is she's also very attractive, which I think, uh, you know, has an unfortunate effect on the publishing world and the coverage of women's books. Absolutely. I, I mean, she, yes, she, she's she's young, she's attractive, she's sort of exotic, but also like very, you know, you know, not really a challenge like to, you know, French discourse or mm-hmm. culture. Like she's very fluent in not just the language, but the codes of, you know, uh, she's lived in Paris for a long time. She went to university there. I mean, like she's completely she's married to a banker like she's part of you know parisian bourgeoisie and as much of as moroccan and uh but there's this little you know it 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 gives these portrayals this like immediate angle right that they can sort of talk about her 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 little touch of of otherness right yeah Um, and i don't know if we talked about this before but i did see that her her own lockdown quarantine essay didn't go down tremendously well um no I think she got a she got a lot of flack for that it was pretty tone deaf so so I mean also but it's not the only one Le Monde's published like her they published they asked her to write this journal so she wrote it from like their their villa in Normandy and uh, you know during like the second or first or second week of confinement and it went down very poorly because it did seem like so privileged and out of touch and but then Le Monde also had like other things like that where they or some video where they were asking artists like to, you know, reflect on like, you know, how their creative process had been enriched by <laughs> confinement and stuff. You know, I mean, th- th- there was a lot of that uh, uh real blindness i think on the, uh, although on the, on the i part think of celebrities and I, media sometimes i think in english language journalism there was a lot of that as well i did i read a wall street journal piece about somebody who had one of their freelancers who had i don't know several staff living <laughs> living at the place with them and how hard it was to manage during quarantine and yet you know I, the nanny was there yeah. and the driver and the masseuse and i don't know who else yeah, yeah, I, I yes, there have been there have been it's a genre it's a bit of a genre actually. <laughs> yeah, but I think you know in that case and other cases like when you have the kind of media exposure she has, like you are gonna slip up now and then, and I think that's just kind of human. Um, I don't uh, re- read read too much into that. I, I mean, I think the way she's 
been sort of packaged as a public personality is uh, not great. Mm. Uh, and especially that, and I sort of bring this up in the piece a bit, but you know that she's sort of, she's, she's made a bit like personal freedom, her signature issue. And we, you know, we know that like of all the freedoms that are missing in Morocco and other Arab countries, like personal and sexual freedom is obviously a really important one, but there's also some like political and economic freedoms that are equally essential. And that she seems like a lot of North African intellectuals has like nothing, very little to say about. Um, And so it feels a bit convenient to like, it's really well received in France to talk about the need for sexual freedom for like, Arab women, right? you know, as opposed to talking about like the way, I don't know, like uh, Moroccan migrants to the EU are taken advantage of in like farms, right? seasonal farms, you know, like there's other forms. Which includes sort of rape and non-sexual freedoms. Right. It's not all happening over there. Uh, You know, there's a lot of things that are complicit in it. And, you know, if you want to talk about patriarchy, then you have to talk about politics. You can't just, you know, it's, you have to talk about political authoritarianism, you know, like men's authority goes up all the way to the top and, you know, these systems are all overlapping. Um, But anyway, I mean, I think, you know, I think the book is actually interesting. I'm actually very curious about its reception in Morocco and in France. I feel like it's made less of a splash than her previous books. Uh, Like it's been considered less interesting stylistically and I haven't seen much commentary on it and you know which is uh, even though it's sort of about French colonialism maybe because it is I don't know right um and and I'm curious also to see how yes how this arc plays out like what the sort of you know what the narrative arc of this will be if if it's if it's one of some sort of like progression or liberation or if it's a cyclical you know for the women of this family right, this mixed right. family yeah interesting so um as for me my my reading is uh very has been very different from yours recently um the the piece that i wrote recently that really stayed with me and struck me the most was about the Egyptian author Aydel Kamel. Um, and, and I wanted to read a bit from a, a piece that Nagib Mahfouz wrote in 1993 about Aydel Kamel to, to give a bit of background about him, if that's all right. As for me, from the moment we met as writers, Aydel invited me to join the Harafish, a writer's collective. At the time, the members were Aydel himself, Zeki Mahlouf, Ahmed Mazar. There were also Amin al-Zahabi, Thabit Amin, Mahmoud Shabana, Asim Helmi, and others who are now deceased. May God have mercy on them. Later, we were joined by, by Tawfiq Saleh, Muhammad Afifi, and Salah Jaheen, as well as occasionally Ahmed Baha, Louis Awad, and others. In terms of writing, Adil was ahead of us in that he had already had his work published. Wake up, Ainsar which he published himself, and then The Magnificent Conman of Cairo, Malim al-Akbar, and The King of Light, Malek Min al-Shu'a. But beginning in 1945, he began to have doubts. He doubted the role of literature and the point of art as a whole. 
all his conversation began to revolve around this one point, such that had his influence on us become complete, we might have all abandoned literature once and for all. And then, to our surprise, he really did stop writing. For a long time, we tried to argue him out of his strange position, urged him to continue until, as I remember, he became angry. He asked us not to remind him of his decision. We considered it a personal issue and we never did come to know the cause of it. Our guess, and it was a guess, was that he did not get the recognition he deserved and that he was terrified of wasting his life. He fled to the practice of law and made a decent living out of his profession. From that day until today, as I write this, we assumed that he was done with writing forever. We were surprised then later to discover that he had written other works, unpublished manuscripts whose dates were not known. It came to light also that one of us, Taufiq Asela, did in fact know the existence of these manuscripts and the dates of their writing, for he used to visit Adil privately in the 1960s, and he would see him writing. This was the last period, it seems, that he wrote, and after this he stuck strictly to his profession. When we asked Adil why he did not publish them, despite having written them, even he did not know the answer, and his memory today seems to have lost its grasp on that time, so that the details are unclear, even to him. That's um. That's something I think a lot of people can relate to. Is this this, <laughs> this, story, this story right? This story about wondering if it's worth it, and and also wondering maybe about if someone else, like why they, you know, didn't pursue. Well, so writing. now Ursula knows why I'm why I'm obsessed with Adikema, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yes, so um, so it was 2013 when uh, Mukhtarat El Karma, the uh, El selects or selections, uh, which was Safe Salmawi's um, publishing house, decided to bring these books not just um, Magnificent Conman of Cairo, but also King of Array of Light or King of Rays uh, into back into trans, uh, not into translation, but back into print. Um, and, and Safe had said that, you know, particularly after Mafuz published this essay in 1993, in which he, he goes on to say that he always dreamed of reading more of Adil Kamel's works and how much he, you know, how much he, he loved Adil's writing and he had a longing that Adil Kemal would go back to writing. He, he sort of became this legend, a, a figure where most people had not actually read his books, but that many people in literary circles knew about his books. Um, and also there was writing about these, this suggestion that he had in novels and, um, and other people have also looked into this. And I, I did, I, so his, Two of his daughters live in Texas currently, and I talked to one of them, Muna, and she unfortunately doesn't know any, anything about hidden works. So that she did suggest to me somebody who might, you know. So if one were on a complete literary detective story, um, are you on the case? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> although maybe next time I'm in Cairo, I might, I might go check in on it. Why not? I guess. Um, that's another thing I can relate to is like the thrill, the idea of like discovering a manuscript, right? Doesn't yeah. that seem like fun? Yeah. Well, I think I have told um, Hamid Shahir, you know, who um, 
um, wrote this is writing a trilogy about Mahfouz, which started with looking for a manuscript of his that has gone missing. Um, mm. And and actually, the one time that I really was on a thrilling um, de- literary detective story, I was sort of co-doing it with um, Shire, which is how we met, which was when and some of Nagib Mahfouz's papers were being auctioned off by Sotheby's and sort of the detective story was how did they get to Sotheby's at all? Mm. And um, yes, so literary detective stories are quite a thrill to be a part of. I even feel a thrill just reading Shire's sort of descriptions of hunting down manuscripts and finding this, you know, this, you know, dusty box in Mahfouz's daughter's house and, and things like that. Um, I think he's, you know, I, I've told him I, I want to be him when I grow up, even though I think we're the same age. But um, uh, so, yeah, so part of Adil's story has, is, is that the mystery is still there. So he was born in 1916, five years after Mahfouz. And as Mahfouz said, he was the one who invited Nigi Mahfouz into this group of writers, the Harafish, which became such a central part of... Mahfouz is sort of, you know, bouncing off ideas, um, talking about literature. Uh, you know, Mona uh, Adil Kamel's daughter said that it was, you know, it was a completely separate life for him. So even though he only published between 1938 and 1942, her father, when he was 22 to 26 years old, um, he did, he was a member, like core member of this group. And that his intellectual and literary life was was the center of his world, not, you know, not being an attorney <laughs> as his parents had wanted him to be. And not all the members, right, were writers. Like some of them no. did have other professions. No. Um, so there were poets and writers, but there were also uh, actors, film directors. Uh, and then there were uh, attorneys. And I think there were a couple of yeah, lawyers, maybe people who had some other business. But the, the core of the group, the discussion was literature and philosophy. Um, I think, I I mean, probably, I don't know, there were some days when they just talked about gossip or politics or who knows what. But that there I would were, also totally read a, I would totally read a book about that group. Absolutely. If somebody could could get it to, if, if it was, if it was possible to Oh, I mean, some of the members are still alive. So surely you could, surely you could. There are so many, um, so many wonderful histories of 20th century um, Arabic literary figures to be written. I think part of uh, actually reading Imen Marcel's book about Adayat Azayat led me on a journey. So uh, the, you know, the Syrian poet Da'ad Haddad, who also um, took her life, I would love to have a book about her and I would, you know, love to have a book about the Harafish. There are so many wonderful figures that who have not been written about. Is Do you know, is the word Harafish just something they made up? Does it come from Hara? Is it a play on like the word for Ali? Um, I read uh, an interview with Mahfouz where he told um, uh, Mohammed Salmawi, Saif Salmawi's uh, father, who was a friend of Mahfouz's, that it meant jerboa, you know, like a kind of an animal. I think it's a word they made up, really. 
It's a great sounding word and it sounds like a slightly nonsense word, but that, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so he used it to mean, you know, underclass in his novel, um, obviously in the group, it's like just their group of buddies, but I I think it's a nonsense word. Um, So, so yeah, so they, Adil Kemal and Nagib Mahfouz sort of came up together writing. They submitted their books to the same literary competitions. Um, I think they found, they both wrote a book about Akhenaten. Um, uh, and I think that was received better by the, uh, the the literary establishment at the time. And it was his, this satire um, that, that has just been translated by Walid and Musharraf and uh, published this year by American University and Cairo Press, Magnificent Con Man of Cairo, a satire about sort of social class, personal aspirations, of art, of family relations that is remains salient now. Uh, that is the one that was rejected. And that is the last book I believe he wrote. And after that, he he was like, screw it, I'm done. <laughs> well, that so that's the guess, right? Is that well, he that's was it. disappointed? That's it. I asked Mona, his daughter, and she said, I don't know. Mafuz would know better than I would. Mm. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure anybody knows except for Idil himself, or if he even knew what his complete motivations were. And he's deceased, so we can't ask him. Mm. So the first chapter is available online and you 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 linked to it on the blog and that's that's all I read but it does give a taste of the kind of style and milieu uh and the main characters I think are are mostly there. Right. Um, yeah, um the, the the two Malim and, and Khaled who uh Khaled is sort of this satirized young man who goes off for an education in England and then comes back to Cairo and is really sort of lost. His his father wants him to work in the ministry of, I can't remember, ministry of uh, something or other. And, you know, the work there is all just absolute nonsense. He's basically paid to come in and sit and read a newspaper. And when he insists... The ministry of Wasta, basically. <laughs> right. When he insists that he wants to do something, he's given utter make work that makes him feel even angrier. Um, and then Malim, who's, whose father was a con man, but who insists he wants to be an honest carpenter. And then he comes in to do some work at, uh, at Khaled's house as he's fixing a window or the window, sort of the window frame. He, Khalid is there in the room and they come across his father is stashed 500 pounds up in the window frame, which is, of course, no great sum now, but it was at the time. And uh, Khalid, Khalid is like, let's split it, man. And the, the you know, the carpenter, of course, is like, oh, no, thanks. I'm not into this doesn't seem like a good deal for me. But then he, he makes this elaborate ruse. We're going to you're going to hand this to my father and I'll say, oh, you know, what an honest man. And he'll give you a reward for it. And, and, you know, Khaled's argument being he stole this money from the peasants anyway, you know, Khaled, um, um, although he's, he's definitely not a hero. He is sort of this tilting at wind windmills kind of equally satirized where he's probably the most, the character we, we laugh at the most. Um, and then 
as it happens, then of course, Malim is caught with this money and, and thrown into prison. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a series of, of more and more ridiculous things that happen as we see these sort of levels of social class and bureaucracy in this still colonial period, Cairo. So do you think now, I mean, obviously he's, you know, there's this renewed interest in him as a writer and and also, as you say, as a member of this sort of literary moment and group. I mean, he these, these are books written when he was so young. How do you evaluate them? And, and you know, how, it seems like people are sort of regretting that he didn't continue to write more, wishing that they could find more things or, you know, feeling that he was unjustly forgotten. Where do you fall on that, having read the novel? Okay, so I found that there were some really fantastic moments and he was clearly so talented and he had he really had something in in whatever 1940 uh the, you know the ending falls apart a bit i think he wasn't exactly sure how to stick the landing on it it's it's not the the modern classic that we've all been waiting for but it definitely shows come on if he had stuck with it he would have you know I, I think it is if you read the early mafuz books too they're Whatever they're not, they're definitely not the Cairo trilogy. They're not the Harafish. Um, they're right, not. But Mahmoud Mahfouz's tr- problem was never not sticking with it. He right. was <laughs> he, that man's biography is like one long. I mean, if there ever there was a personality that was like dogged and determined, right? Although he does write sort of sympathetically in this 1993 essay that he had a period. Um, when was that period? Actually, I'm remembering writing. an anecdote. I'm remembering an anecdote that I read in that Gamal al Khitani tells in his book about Mahfouz. And it's that supposedly Mahfouz, after writing the trilogy, took it to the publisher, someone famous who I can't remember. And they, they was told, This book is too, we have no physical means of publishing a book of this size. Like, we can't publish it. Like, this is, you know, too many notes. And, and he, in disgust, left the manuscript there, just like walked out of the office. Mm. I mean, I don't know if this is a true story, but it's told in this book. And 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 he says, forgot about it for a year, like the only handwritten manuscript of the trilogy. And then at some point was like recontacted by the publisher or somebody else said, wait a moment, just publish it in three volumes. And then he went back to see if he could find the manuscript that he had just left there. I mean, it almost sounds too good to be true, but yet there are these stories about him also, that's true, about him being discouraged or like, you know, nearly giving up on publishing one of his most famous works. Right. But that he did have this sort of iron constitution. I mean, maybe it was required at the time that you just be absolutely unwilling to quit. And yeah, he he's, he apparently had periods where he he stopped, um, where he doubt. I mean, obviously, yeah, where he doubted himself. Uh, well, he stopped after the nineteen fifty two revolution. Also, he didn't. Right. Uh, I don't know if he stopped writing, but he didn't publish anything for several years. Right. Um, I mean, don't you think it's always required actually to be very 
dog. I mean, not just then, but no, even, no. even more now. <laughs> no, I mean, oh, which which you don't think which, to be which publishing? To, I mean, some people I think just come up in a world where they're believed to be writers. Writers are valued. They're from uh, whatever uh, a social and intellectual class where it's okay to write. Um, they're supported in that and know that they didn't have to be dogged. I see some people who didn't have to be dogged or so. I think they're the minority. If I think about most of the writers, think about most writers. They, if, if First of all, if they were women until like 50 years ago, it was an insane challenge. Uh, uh, so like every, you know, and probably, you know, even now, uh, you know, they face all sorts of financial problems, like, uh, just 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 making a living i i mean i think it's a minority of writers who are supported and encouraged and told because that's not the key to doing it i don't think i think there's plenty of people who have every opportunity in terms of time and money and aren't going to be successful right like they don't have anything particularly great to write yeah but i mean i do i have seen okay (laughs) I'm just excusing myself here, but I have seen, you know, people write about how they were, whatever, born at the, you know, at a certain part in the race. Their their parents were writers there or historians or whatever they ended up being. Um, and and that it, it just it came naturally to them to not not the actual doing of the writing. Yeah. Which maybe isn't hard for everyone. I also think if you bring up families like. Of all the professions, there's tons of actors and actresses, children of actors and actresses and doctors and lawyers and journalists and everything. There are very few writers whose children are, I mean, as, as, as who can inherit their level of professional success. It's not a transferable, it's one of the only skills that's just not, you can be in the milieu, you can have the opportunity, you can see the model. I don't think it's something that can run in families, right? You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah, sure. There's although, a few, although there's people who've I gone think, into the field, but they don't have right, the same profile. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can think of a lot of uh, people who've gone into the field, but not yet, yeah, not necessarily achieved the same level of success. Because it's so, it is, but I agree with you. Oh, there's like a million structural things that completely facilitate it. And, 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 but I'm saying, I think it's so hard these days. I think so many people would like to write. There's such an interest in it. And the chances of, of being able to try the profession are so vanishingly small, right? Like right. Uh, of, right. of, of, of having it be your actual career. And in fact, and these writers were talking about these Arab writers you know, who were starting out in the thirties and forties, it was the same thing in the sense that they couldn't make a living at it. They all had other jobs. That's how okay, so supported guess, himself. Yeah. So my guess is, is that Adil Kemal wasn't looking to make a living at it, but the sorts of things that he wanted to write about and the way in which he wanted to write um, in, you know, in this um, sort of more uh, middle Arabic, uh, closer to colloquial, for a more general audience, inspired by some of the detective stories and such that were so popular in the late 30s and early 1940s in Egyptian magazines. Mm. You know, this sort of hybrid genre writing, I think it also Mm. sort of was out of its time. 
um, that that's not what the literary establishment, uh, you know, maybe it's what Mahfouz was encouraging him to write and his friends in the Harafish, but not what the literary establishment was looking for. And so I think there was this, I felt that he was somehow out of sync with his time. There's something snappy about the way he writes. Like it's, it's fast moving. Right, right, right. right. Uh, and also sort of sarcastic and kind of knowing, kind of, there's a lot of like allusions. And that is noirish, isn't it? Like, yeah, so, sort of- so I was reading a lot uh, for this, the, our crime issue that's coming up for Arablet Quarterly, uh, which we should be putting to bed today, tonight. Um, uh, a lot of crime stuff from uh, Egyptian literary magazines of the late 1930s, early 1940s, up through 1950. Um, and it, it does have like a somewhat similar style you know, maybe more literary, more, he, he's obviously, he's obviously more interested in character than any of those pieces. Those short pieces don't have to be interested in character. Um, and, and Khaled ultimately does remind me of, of Kamel in the, in the Cairo trilogy. Um, but that he borrows a lot from that detective writing, which I think maybe what, for whatever reason, the establishment wasn't quite ready for genre crossover at that moment it's too bad there's so much potential for that especially if you're if you're if you're actually using it to kind of honestly look at you know the corruption of the police and of of the system which seems to be part of what he's doing here i also from the from the little bit that i read the the sort of sarcasm and cynicism of the descriptions reminded me a bit of Albert Cossery's novels, right? This this question of like, why, you know, the friend who's like indignant that he's actually trying to go straight and have a real job. Like, why would you do that, man? You you know, this kind of uh, urban bohemian uh, cynical uh, scene where you just make enough to make a living and then just have a good time and there you know, is live so nowhere, belong to no one. Yes, yes. Kosri was number one that I would put in a constellation with this book. I put it in a constellation with Beer in the Snooker Club, perhaps because I over I put Beer in the Snooker Club with everything. And 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 then also with the Cairo trilogy, just because Khaled does, I, I feel like somehow there's a relationship between him and and Kamel in the trilogy um but but with these sort you know but particularly with Kusari and um and 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 Reli and these witty portrayals of of people who um who either who 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 feel there's something else to life other than getting ahead well, and also feel like there's no way to get ahead like and to get ahead is, fair right. and square that's a that's right. an illusion right. um I also I think it is interesting also if if there's so many sort of like sort of themes in common with Mafu's novels, it's kind of interesting to see how the writer who, you know, did become so well known, did develop himself to the fullest of what he was capable of, you know, to see in his youth how similar themes were being approached by artists he was contemporary with 
um, it kind of gives you a sense of it, it's sort of interesting to see the direction he went with it. Right. Like right. there's an overbearing father and there's this the estranged foreign educated son, but Mahfouz is pretty earnest compared to this approach. Like he's not yes. really that playful. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because Mahfouz of course was also influenced by these detective stories. And he says that his, his first favorite books were, were detective novels, but he does go in much more. He does take a much more social realist turn with his works. He used to, I, I love this, he used to copy out entire books by hands, word for word, when he was like a schoolboy, and then sign them. By <laughs> that was his first writing experience, was just pure copying. I think you know? that is such good practice. I think that is brilliant I, I love, I mean, that's how you start out with the very idea that you could do it. Right. And, and yeah, I know it's, I, I've always liked that to picture him doing I, that. Yeah. I mean, uh, there have been moments when I thought I should do such a thing, but never have I actually sat down and written out an entire other, you know, like a scribe would. I love that. Well, idea. you have to be like as inspired and as obtuse as an eleven-year-old <laughs> to do that, right? Well, perhaps I was that obsessive as an eleven-year-old. Too bad mm. it didn't occur to me. See, I would now have a Nobel Prize. Ah, uh, <laughs> well, I think that's a nice place for us to stop, maybe today, and wrap it up. What do you All think? Right. Yes, it's excellent with my my lost Nobel Prize. <laughs> well with the, with with the, yes with this alternate uh this alternate universe this alternate universe and in, in which you had a mafuzian path <laughs> yes uh he's one he's he is unique though he really absolutely. is absolutely very singular human being and actually so this 1993 essay reminds me again about how generous he was as well that he was mm writing this kind thing about his friend who had just moved to Houston about how, what a great author he was and how, mm. what a support he was to Mafuz. Yeah. Someone who's out there listening, like we need an intellectual history of this gang. Definitely. We need a, we need a, a good gossipy book about yes. this group of writers, please. All right. Um, well, it was great talking to you as always. And uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks. Yes, lovely talking to you as well. Bye. Bye, Marsha. Bye.